Just like the ancestral diet is so different from the standard American diet, so the ways our ancestors birthed bears very little relation to how modern industrialised communities bring the next generation into the world. In this intimate episode, originally recorded for patrons of the podcast, Andrea and I share our birthing stories. We've got four births between us and we came to them with very different backgrounds. We talk about the actual births, the run-up to them, what we learnt from them, what we regret and much more. There is so much to learn from how one approaches birth. We hope this episode encourages and inspires you whether you're planning to birth soon or not. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Hello, Alison. Hello, Andrea. You're coming over loud and clear. That's great. I just bashed the microphone. Good. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, oh this is awesome to be recording again. We haven't recorded in a little while. Indeed. So, so tell me the last thing you ate. I'm always interested. I made two fried eggs, a cup of broth, and a cup of coffee mm. with cream. Mm. So sounds pretty simple. Delicious. But pretty good. Mm-hmm. Sounds How about nice. you? Meatballs. Um, thanks, Ooh, thanks oh, to um, thanks to Ira's post on Discord. She inspired me to do a massive, yeah. massive batch of meatballs, and I wanted to keep it egg free so Gabriel could have them. And so instead, mm-hmm. I used liver pate to um, bind them. And I, I think Ooh, we made yeah. about 120 of these meatballs. I couldn't fit wow. them in. I couldn't fit them in the oven. It was just a wow. <laughs> it's almost a disaster. Anyway, so I've got meatballs everywhere. So we had some um, oh meatballs, and I made a sauce with um, lardo and onion and leek and broccoli and chard and tomato paste and stock. And mm. I'm sure there was something else, but I've forgotten garlic. And then I toasted some bread, some sourdough, put the meatballs on the top, and poured the veggie sauce over the top of it. Mm. Mm. very good you know i i was gonna say i thought i saw ira just made meatballs but um now you got me thinking mm. when i head upstairs after this i'll get some meat out of the freezer mm-hmm. i just got out one of my containers of pate yesterday mm. trying to go through it all because i need to make more because mm. i have so many livers in my freezer yeah. right now it's a great use but, of pate I don't think I ever thought I, I've I've gotten really into the habit of putting pate in everything, mm. but I don't think I've ever thought about putting it in mm. meatballs. It's really it, it gives them a kind of a, a depth of flavor that you're not really sure where it comes from, but it tastes nice, you know. Yeah, yeah, so, I'm excited. There we go. You can go and make some meatballs with pate. Ira has inspired us <laughs> a meatball production in um, industrial, yeah, <laughs> industrial yeah. quantities, meatball factory, exactly. <laughs> If you're into ancestral eating, you'll know that liver is a superfood. 
full of vitamin A, K and a whole host of B vitamins, plus many essential minerals. It has a truly exceptional nutrient profile and is a staple of traditional healthy diets. But it's not always as easy to get liver into our lives as we want. Getting a good supply, knowing how to cook it so it actually tastes good and getting all of our family to eat it. These things can be hard, especially when we're busy or travelling. That's where Andrea and I turn to liver capsules. They give us the incredible benefits of liver without having to worry about the sourcing, the preparation or the eating. One Earth Health produces organ capsules from 100% grass-fed New Zealand-raised cattle. As a podcast listener, you can get 5% off and free shipping by using the link oneearthhealth.com forward slash ancestral kitchen. And each time you order, you'll also be supporting us to keep on making the podcast. Details and the link are in the show notes. <laughs> so we've got um, quite a lot to talk about today, I think. So mm-hmm. um, Patreon questions. I wanted to start with Deb's question because um, I think it's shorter than Zara's question. So Deb says, yeah. um, I have a question about the fat on top of your bone broth after it cools. Do you keep it and heat it back in or do you remove it to, as some would do, get rid of excess fat? I always hmm. think it's the good fat and I keep it in my bone broths. Thanks, Deb. So um, mm-hmm. I replied to her on Patreon, but I think it's a good thing to cover. And I'm, I just said you do the same as me and I'm hoping I wasn't wrong. Tell us what you do with your fat. Mm-hmm. So... Wait, so specifically before I start the bone broth or like after it's no, cooked? No, after, after it's cooked. Okay. Um, yeah, so it depends on how much fat there is. Sometimes there's not very much. Mm-hmm. If it's just some chicken carcasses and I didn't put any skin in or anything, there's sometimes not really very much fat. So I just kind of shake it back in. But if there's a nice thick cap of fat, mm-hmm. either it stays on the broth because I need it to help preserve the broth in my refrigerator or I break it and kind of, I don't know, lift it off Mm -hmm. and I'll put it in another jar. Usually I heat it and melt it back down into another jar. And then I have a jar of broth for, I don't know, frying eggs or putting on bread or whatever. Your jar of fat. Yeah. So basically your snap to me, if there's a nice amount, I just, when I'm using my broth, I just spoon a bit of the fat in with the broth that I've taken out of the um, container because we mm-hmm. rarely use a whole jar of broth at one time, a whole, you know, litre, mm. which should be caught for you. We usually use it in like half of that at a time. Okay. Um, sometimes if there's a massive block of it, I will do what you do. I take it off. Um, yeah. But I don't heat it back down. I just put it in a bowl in the fridge and then just use okay. it, you know, cut a bit off and just use it. Um, so we basically do the same thing. But what I did say yeah. to Deb on Patreon was what you've just said, which is, if you keep that fat cap on the broth in the fridge, it helps preserve it because the oxygen can't get to it. Uh-huh. So that's another added bonus. Yeah. Don't get rid of it. Yeah. Don't get rid of it. Yep. We oh, love I think that. I figured out why the fan on this computer is going, hold on, there's a program running in the background that is... How dare it? Does it know we're recording? How dare they? <laughs> <laughs> Let me see if I close this, if it um, shuts the fan off. Hopefully somebody... I can't hear the fan, but I bet the microphone can hear it because it, it, it has yeah, better hearing than me. I think that I, I've, I, I haven't heard it on any of our recordings, but I've recorded some other things and it's picked up the uh, fan. Okay. Um, but 
Okay, I closed it. We'll see if we'll see what happens. Okay. Anyways, other than other otherwise, sorry for the fan background. Oh, we'll see when it comes through. <laughs> so that's um, yeah. Deb's question. Thank you, Deb, for your question. Um, and yeah. Zara's question is basically, I think, going to be the rest of the episode. So what I want to do is um, read out her question, which is in two parts, and then we'll see where we go from there. Okay. Yeah. So perfect. she said, I know you both have talked a bit about birth in previous podcasts, but I wondered if you would feel comfortable sharing your full birth stories and what you chose mm -hmm. to do, not to do, and why. Also, Andrea, since you have multiple children, is there anything you did different after your first birth? Were both of your mm -hmm. partners on board with your choices around pregnancy birth? And do you have any advice for people whose partners may feel sceptical or resistant to ideas like home, free births, natural, wild pregnancy, etc.? Mm -hmm. um, I know that's technically a bunch of questions, not one, but I hope it's not too much. And then she added on a second comment. I guess I also, in an addendum to the last question, are there any books or articles research that either of you read that you would recommend? Hmm. So that is a, it's been a really nice question, Zara, because we haven't actually shared our birth stories and yet we, we haven't even shared them with, e with each other, even though we have talked no, about bits of them no. with each other. You know, we, we know bits. Yeah. And um, I spent some time this morning going back through the notes that my midwife gave me um, after Gable's birth and it it was just wonderful to go back <laughs> wonderful to go back to them I loved being pregnant yeah. and I and I really yeah. enjoyed for want of a better word in the English language my birth so um yeah thank yeah. you for the question how do you want to organize this um Andrea because you've got two more kids than me so you may have um, more to say well, than me let's start with yours because um okay. I yeah, let's hear your birth because I, I want to hear your story. I'm really, I just really curious to hear about it. And you mm. just were reading it when we started. So it's very, mm. very, very mm. fresh for you, obviously. Mm. So let's start with you. Um, why don't you go? Okay. Um, okay. Have you got a cup of tea? Just start okay. with your story okay. and maybe <laughs> then we can try to tackle some of the questions and then I can, yeah, I don't have to share three full birth stories, but. Um, okay. Yeah. Because Zara's asking why we you know why we made certain decisions or didn't make certain decisions I mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. wanted to go back a bit to the pregnancy because what happened yeah. during the pregnancy obviously informed the birth so um podcast listeners know that uh -huh. I was without a cycle for a long time and then my cycle yeah. came back and I wasn't expecting to get pregnant and then suddenly I realized surprisingly that I was pregnant we were living in Italy at the time and I was 39. Um, I knew at that point that I didn't want to go to a hospital. I didn't want to stand a birth. I didn't want any scans at all. I, you know, Rob and I have been following an alternative lifestyle for like a, almost a decade at that point. And um, I didn't want to go to hospital at all. There was, there was just no question. I wanted to have the birth at home. But there is absolutely no history of that in my family. And I didn't have any friends who'd home birthed. I was born in a hospital um, and bottle fed. My sister had her wow. children in a hospital. And mm -hmm. she'd already had three children at that point. And the first one was the only one that I was in England for. The other ones I was in Italy. And she had a terrible birth for her first child. She was in labour for two days. When I went to see her, she looked like oh, she'd been dragged through a hedge backwards. She was sick during labour. She she was stitched. She had to have um, 
suction put on the baby's head. It was just, she really didn't have a very good birth at all. Um, oh my word. And yeah, there, none of my friends I knew had home birthed. I just, I knew absolutely no one. My, I'd never been around births either, not like you, you know, when we come to your story, it's very different. I'd never seen a child being right, birthed. Right. My best experience of birth was from television and stories. I'd never seen a child being born. Oh my born. gosh. Wow. And yeah, I knew I didn't want to go into hospital. Um, so it was a challenge navigating the kind of process. Um, so first of all, we, we tried to find a midwife in Italy because I thought, well, if I'm not going to hospital, I, I would like someone to come to my home and help me through the birth because I don't have much experience of birthing. <laughs> and Rob and I, a very memorable day, Rob and I found a midwife who was um, who worked at a special birthing centre on the hills somewhere in Tuscany. And we went to see her and spoke to her about the birth. And one of the questions she asked me was, when was your last period? And I said, well, I haven't had regular periods. I've had one period and then I haven't had periods for five years before that. And so I don't actually know when, you know, when my cycle was or when I got pregnant. I don't know anything that I can give you with concrete at all. And she said, oh, okay. So, um, well, that's okay because we can tell from the scans when you're due. And I was like, I don't want any scans. I don't want to go to hospital at all. And she said, well, I have to be able to induce you at 42 weeks if you're if you haven't given birth. And so unless I know when your due date is, I'm not able, I won't be able to induce you when the law says I have to induce you. And so I can't take you on. I'm sorry, unless you have scans. And wow, that wow. was a blow that I was not expecting because I was, I, I, I loved being in Italy. I, I did not know. And she then said, and you won't, find a, you won't find a midwife in Italy who will take you on. And so... Yeah, she's probably right. And I, I was like, right, okay, so what, what does that mean? And over the next 24 hours, I was like, well, that means we have to go back to England because I'm not going to a hospital to have this oh, child. And I want someone with me so if something goes wrong or something happens that I'm not experienced with, there, there's due diligence, you know, there's care. So then, Rob, I was really upset because the thought of leaving Italy just sent me into a complete spin. Rob found a midwife yeah. who lived near his mum in Kent in England and phoned her to talk to her to say, look, this is what this Italian midwife said. Is that Can she really say that? Is that really true? What's the situation in England? And this is an independent midwife. And she said, no, that's just you shouldn't be treated like that. If you were to come wow. and I was to look after you, I would be fine with you not having any scans. I would be fine with not knowing when your due date was. We would talk about, you know, if you went overdue in our what we think overdue was, we would talk about how you felt. And if you wanted to be induced, then I could organise that for you. But I don't like to induce women because I think the baby comes when it wants to come. And so I'm not going to force you into any form of induction. And there are lots of other things we can do to get things moving along. And so that, when we found out that, I thought, well, yeah, we have to leave this. We have to leave this country because I'm not, I'm not going into hospital, and I'm not not having anyone with my birth. And so, 
over, I think that was about end of August. We left Italy in October. So it took us a couple of months to kind of close everything up. We had nowhere to live in the UK. So we moved in with Rob's mum in a very small house on the outskirts of London, which was a challenge. The whole thing for me was just a big <laughs> letting go because I, I didn't want to leave the country. You know, I, that, that Italy was my home. I didn't want to go and live with Rob's parents, <laughs> Rob's mum. I didn't want to go back to my parents. I felt that Rob's mum would give us a better place. Um, and just sort of lots of little things. The, <laughs> one of the main things is that my parents smoke. And I thought, well, I don't want to be in a smoky house oh, with yeah. when I'm pregnant. Anyway, so yeah. we, we went home and we used savings that we had to engage this midwife because I thought, you know, it was very, very, very important to me um, that we had someone who knew that, what they were doing at the birth. And before that, I'd discovered or found out about something called hypnobirthing, which is a kind of a form of um, two, two sides to it, really. One is breathing, a set of breathing techniques, which you learn to help you be able to easily recall them during labor. And the other side of it is teaching you that birth is a natural process and trying to go and and get you to understand over and above all the loud shouting from everywhere else that birth is painful and has to be done in hospital and needs right. special equipment. Right. Hypnobirthing teaches you that birth is normal and your body is capable of doing this. And it gives you a practice to do every day with breathing and other practices to do with your with your body and with kind of psychological meditation. So we, um, I did an online course on hypnobirthing and then I practiced it every single day of my pregnancy, literally from the, the day that I, well, the two days after I found out I was pregnant and I found it, every day I did the hypnobirthing meditation. Every day I practiced the hypnobirthing breathing. And in addition, at the time, I was just finishing off my yoga teaching qualification, which I was doing with a um, an ashram and two American teachers who lived by me in Italy. And I chanted every day. One of the teachers is a quite well-known um, Kundalini yoga singer called Sadasat Kar, and she has lots of albums. And I would chant every day two particular um, Kundalini chants. And so I was doing a lot of kind of internal stuff you know put all my faith in that hypnobirthing and enjoying the practices enjoying the practices of the breathing enjoying the chanting enjoying everything um I carried that on when we went back to the UK and we met the midwife I started going to a yoga uh, a birth yoga pregnancy yoga class and at the beginning that went quite well I enjoyed the yoga but <laughs> a lot of the ex-students kept coming back to talk about their births and they'd all gone to hospital. They'd all kind of intent, had the intention to birth at home and then ended up going to hospital and talking about, you know, I remember one of them talking about the epidural she had. Oh, and I said to oh. the teacher, I just, this is not a positive thing for me. I'm coming to the class when I've 
sort of saturated myself in hypnobirthing and chanting. And I'm hearing stories of people who've gone to hospital. And she said, oh, just, just put your headphones in when they come. And I thought, hey, I can't do that. Someone's up there talking. Wow. I can't put my headphones in. <laughs> so I stopped going to the pregnancy yoga class because unbelievably it was kind of making me less confident in what I was trying to do. Oh, yeah. That stuff gets in your head. We should never underestimate the theology that we're absorbing. It's supposed to be a pregnancy yoga class, so for home birthing. And it just, yeah, yeah, it made me think, (laughs) no, just I have to just focus on me, the space I'm creating at home, Rob. And what I did find was there's a, in the UK at the time, there was a kind of a birthing buddy matching scheme where you could reach out and they would put you in touch with a lady who'd birthed at home and then you could email them. And so I had two ladies who were English who'd birthed at home and I just emailed them back and forth and back and forth asking questions, learning what they'd done, learning what it was like. And that was an absolute godsend, a blessing, because I I met people, you know, I actually got to ask them the questions that I wanted to and, and I got to learn there, which was nice. Did you know we have a Patreon for the listeners of the Ancestral Kitchen podcast? That's right. Can't get enough of this. (laughs) Well, there's more of it over on the Patreon feed just waiting for you. We have a variety of levels to choose from and a bunch of different benefits to enjoy. Your sponsorship keeps the podcast on the air ad-free and helps us keep buying books to read and talk about on the podcast. It also helps Allison buy bizarre ingredients at the farmer's market so she can ferment them and tell us about them later. Check us out at patreon.com slash ancestral kitchen podcast. Um, I decided we decided quite early that I wanted to birth in water because I love water and I love warmth. And so we started looking around for a kind of a pool, you know, a birthing pool Um. And got that all organised. Everything was going fine with the midwife. I didn't go to the hospital. I didn't have any scans. The pregnancy was was wonderful. I felt amazing. And I loved being pregnant. I loved having a big belly. I was energetic up until about the last month when I think I pulled a muscle in my stomach and I struggled to walk. I was walking every day. Yeah, Um, yeah. A few little problems with my back. I'm hypermobile, so things like that kind of tend to happen. But I, I really loved being pregnant, everything about it. Um, and Rob was extremely supportive of everything that I wanted to do. He, There was kind of no question about it. Um, when we travelled back from Italy to England, we didn't want to fly because of the x-ray kind of you know the radiation on the flight just like for the same reason we didn't want scans we didn't want scans because of the radiation that comes with the scans right and we also didn't want scans I hadn't thought about this until now because when Rob researched it it became clear that if they found out that something was wrong with the baby they couldn't actually do anything about it to make it better all they could do was tell us there was something wrong with the baby and then we could choose whether we wanted to abort or not. And we decided together as a couple that whatever way the baby came out, we wouldn't want to abort if we knew that information. 
And so the scans kind of seemed useless to us because there was nothing that they were going to tell us that would change what we were doing in any way, shape or form. And it also seemed like, you know, friends who I'd known who had scans kind of just got worried about everything. You know, going into hospital, anxiety, is it going to say that, oh, it says this, they're not sure, I've got to do this. And it, it, yeah. it's pretty much like having, and we haven't talked about this really in the podcast, but, you know, cervical smears and mammograms and that kind of thing. Right. The anxiety right. around the whole process has a big impact on one's psychology and one's state of mind, I think. So that's another reason why oh, we didn't yeah. do scans. Oh, 100%. So Rob did all the research to try and get us back to England on the train because we didn't want to fly. We'd never gone back to Italy, from Italy to England on the train, and it, it cost four times as much as the plane. But it was really exciting. We went up to Florence and to Milan, and then we went into Switzerland, and then we stayed overnight in Switzerland, and then we went to Paris, and then we went under the um, English Channel to the south coast of England, and then by train to um, Rob's mum's house, which was, um, it was snowy and amazing, and Rob carried everything and I was just with this big kind of belly and it just, it was really nice. It felt really good <laughs> to be consciously choosing to go on the train rather than flying. Yeah. Um, so I shall, I'm conscious of time, I shall hurry up. Um, so the pregnancy went really well. No, I love it. Don't hurry. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and um, I'd kind of tried to figure out when Gable was due based on, the one period that I'd had before I got pregnant and when I'd noticed my temperatures changing because I was charting my temperature at the time because I'd been doing that in order to try and get my cycle back. So I'd carried on with it. Um, so I could see potentially when I'd ovulated before I, you know, I had the kind of missing period because I was pregnant. So I kind of worked out he was due on the 14th of April. And I remember writing in my diary about kind of February or March and and I wrote down the 14th of April and then I wrote down the 21st and I wrote down the 7th as well and I I drew a ring around the 7th in pencil because I just kind of thought mm, I feel like he's going to be born on the yeah. 7th <laughs> and then on the 6th of April I went into labour and it started about lunchtime I was just at home um, in, in Rob's mum's house. I was actually making some sweet potato falafel and I started feeling kind of really gentle contractions. And it took about two hours for me to think, hang on, this is, I think, I think this is labour. Rob had a friend over and was kind of chatting and playing some music with him. And I just kind of carried on moving around a bit and um, staying comfortable by about midnight, it was clear that that um, my, my contractions were coming a lot quicker and were a lot stronger. And so mm. we shut off the front room in the house and we had, um, the curtains were drawn. I had candles, which I'd planned. You shut off the what? Um, we shut off the room. The room has like a divider in it. So we just sort of oh, shut, I shut both the doors. So I was in kind okay. of a confined space. We drew the curtains. I had some music, which I'd used during all the kind of hypnobirthing sessions and all the um, singing that I'd done. And so we put that on. Um, I remember we bought bananas for me to just 
kind of munch on a bit during um, during labour. And I had lots of water. I, I read that in the notes, how many times I drank water. And then I just focused on the breathing that I'd learned and that I'd done, you know, for the whole nine months, every every single day. And because I'd done it every single day, it just came to me very, very easily in that moment. Um, yeah, yeah. And we called the midwife and she sort of said, or oh, when the contractions are this far apart, give me another call. And the night went on and on and um, she came about five in the morning the next day and she was incredible. She literally just sat in the corner and didn't do anything to um, change the energy that was in the room. She was very quiet when I needed her. She was yeah. there and she was monitoring what was happening in a very non-invasive way. Um, that went on. My contractions got stronger and closer together. At about um, 8.30, the pool was ready. It took a long time to fill the pool. And in retrospect, we should have probably started a bit earlier. Um, didn't realise it was so big. But at about 8.30, the pool was ready. And I got in it. And I remember very distinctly how absolutely delicious that was. It made a huge difference to me to be in the water mm -hmm. and have that mm -hmm. warm water around me. It just, it's like all my muscles kind of just went, oh, thank you. Um, so that was about 8.30 in the morning. And then things just kind of carried on. I carried on with the breathing. I was having, sometimes I had a drink, sometimes I had a bit of banana, the music was on. Rob was there with me all the time, holding my hand. I was squeezing his hand when when I had contractions. The uh -huh. the big thing about hypnobirthing is that there's there's no pushing, you know. So it's kind of the opposite of what you see on on television in births, where you know right. someone's right. screaming at the mum, push. Um, hypnobirthing teaches you don't need to push. Your body has expulsion forces within it, and if you can relax enough to allow the uterus to do its job, it will push the baby out without you needing to put any downward force yeah. on your body. Yep. So I didn't push, I just carried on with the breathing. And it went on. And I remember getting to the point, probably a few hours later than that, like 11, 30, 12, thinking, I don't know how much longer I can do this. And I think that was really, I mean, I'd been, I'd been awake all night, I'd been awake for like 24 hours at that point. And it was intense and I just remember thinking, I hope the baby comes soon. Um, the midwife looked with a, with a mirror and saw the head just as when I was thinking, I don't know if I can carry on as much. I guess there is a point that they say during labour where you just, I forget what it's called, like the break or right, the bridge transition. or like transition. That's it. I think that's when I had that thought. <laughs> and... Um, yeah. The midwife looked. Your darkest hour. Exactly. <laughs> she looked underneath of the mirror and she said, oh, I can see, I can see the head. And the, um, the water was still intact. So my waters hadn't broken. So she could see just a little bit of the head. And then, yeah, the last kind of sort of contraction, I remember I made a noise at that point. I'd been quite quiet through most of the time up till then. And then I made a very loud noise and Gable's head was birthed 
and then his body just slipped out. I didn't really need to do anything wow. else. I picked wow. him up and put him on my skin and Rob was right there. Mm. He was screaming. Gabriel was screaming. I think he was cold. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and the midwife in the notes put Gabriel, Gabriel screamed in brackets very loudly, exclamation mark, close bracket. <laughs> That is a reassuring sound in a newborn, yeah, though. Yeah, you know, and um, good. you're like, okay, lungs are clear. <laughs> he stayed with me um, for I don't know how long it was—a few minutes, um, twenty minutes, maybe thirty minutes. I got out of the water, went onto the sofa. I um, oh. went into the toilet after that, and the midwife came with me, and I sat on the toilet, and the um, afterbirth came out, um, the placenta. And then I hadn't been able to go to the loo, I don't think, for about 20 hours. And I, did, I went to the loo. I went to the, to, did a wee because that had all been kind of I stopped because what was happening was more important. And then I just stayed yeah. on the sofa with yeah. Gabriel. And it, um, I gave birth to him at 19 minutes past one. I looked in the notes. So my labour was 25 hours. Um, wow. The only thing I regret from it, I would have to say, is that the midwife was keen to use an electronic device to test the heartbeat of the baby. Um, before and during her visit, she'd been using stethoscope um, to hear the heartbeat, to see it was fine. But it was very difficult for her to use a stethoscope in the water. And my position right. was, was difficult for her to do that. And she wanted to use a Doppler, I think it's called, a machine. And I said yes because I wanted to hear my baby's heartbeat. But that was the only electronic equipment we used during the whole process. And in hindsight, hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? Um, I wish that she hadn't used it. Um, I knew that Gabriel was kicking during the process. I felt him kicking during, you know, several points during the labour. Um, but I, it reassured me, which must have done something for my for my hormones and in turn my muscles. Right. Um, but I wish we hadn't done that. It's true. Um, yeah. But apart from that, it was, it just was a wonderful birth, you know, considering no one, everyone around me just thought it wasn't going to happen. People said that to us. My my parents just, every time oh I mentioned gosh. the birth, they didn't talk to me. Rob's mum made sure she had the route to the hospital because she had a car all kind of mapped out and, you know, she was being prepared but she was expecting to have to put me in the car and take me to the hospital. Um, and, you know, Rob, wow. Rob said to me, I think several weeks before the birth, um, which ended up being on the 7th, which was freaky a little bit, perhaps. Um, Rob said to me, trust in what we've done. You know, you don't, you don't know, you don't have any experience with this. You haven't seen it before, but look at the work we've done over the last mm -hmm. decade to change mm -hmm. our life. Look at all the things we've brought forth. Look at all the, the um, challenges we face together and trust in the work you've been doing the last nine months. Trust in all the work you've done before that to get you to this point. It will see you through. And, and he's right. It did, you know, together it, it was a very nice experience for us and hopefully for Gabriel too, which is, um, which I feel proud of because it's a, I don't obviously remember, but I don't think my birth was particularly um, good for me. I was, I was born in a uh -huh. hospital. My 
I had to, I was a four steps delivery. Um, my mother was in labor for oh a, a long, long time. And I don't think it was a pleasant experience for her or for me. Whereas I can, I can say with a lot of affection that it was a, a really empowering and beautiful experience for me. And hopefully it was something that I could, I've given to Gabriel that he will never, you know, that's Absolutely. always part of him, you know. Yeah. Made tons of mistakes since then, yeah. but hey-ho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll save those for later. <laughs> we can, we're, we're a really good parent before our babies are born. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, there we wow. go. Hey, you washing the dishes. <laughs> Been there. You've heard Allison and I talk over and over about her love of rye sourdough bread. Well, I might actually call it an obsession, but that's neither here nor there. Now you can make Allison's rye sourdough in your own kitchen with her as your teacher. And she's a really good teacher. Rye is economical, it's delicious, and full of nutrients and low in gluten. There's a reason why it has been a darling of bread bakers for centuries. Make it into sourdough, as Allison will show you in her course, Rye Sourdough Bread, Mastering the Basics. And you've got an amazing, tasty, and nutritious staple in your kitchen. It's traditional, and it's nutritional. In this course, you'll learn everything there is to know about how she creates and maintains her rye sourdough starter, all about whole grain sourdough rye, including the key differences between baking with rye and wheat, how to make two loaves, an everyday rye sandwich bread, and a delicious Russian-style dark rye loaf, and what to do with your sourdough discard, including video walkthroughs for sourdough pancakes and a tasty, sweet, spiced cake. Head to www.ancestralkitchen.com slash rye. And what do you, I mean, it sounds like Rob pretty much, Rob and Gary are so similar in these mm. things in that I would use the same words as you said. There was no question if I said this is how we're going to do the birth related thing. Mm. You know, Gary says, yeah, of I course. mean, I know you do your research and I know that you know what your body needs and everything. Um, mm. So it sounds like Rob didn't question but that's a I mean I've heard people say things like oh <clears throat> my husband or my partner or whatever doesn't want me to do mm. the you know midwife birth because she's 40 minutes away or she's too far away mm. for the appointments or something and I'm thinking you guys literally had to oh yeah you literally had to leave your country mm. <laughs> um yeah it's a pretty big step that it was it's a lot of trust that for was Rob. very it was very challenging. With with hindsight, again, we kind of needed to leave. We needed that shake up. We didn't have things set up properly to to be working in this country. We we needed the shake up that it gave us, but it felt like a real wrench for me um, to to leave the place that I was in love with. You know, um, but there was there was just no question. I feel like the the thing about the midwife being far away, you know, we called the midwife and the midwife said, you're not far enough along yet. You know, call me when your contractions are like this. Uh -huh. And she wasn't from the town where we lived. You know, it took her 25, 30 minutes to drive to us. 
um, even you know in the in the middle of the night she came out at you know five o'clock in the morning um, and she was able to judge when she needed to be there based on what I was telling her as to what was happening with my contractions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if I mean, something good... had gone wrong, I could have gone to the hospital, yeah. and that was, and, and I had a car on, you know, there available. I could have been bundled into that and taken to the hospital. But she arrived, you know, she she arrived at five o'clock, and I didn't have Gabriel until twenty past one. Um, there was plenty of time. Um, I think that yeah. uh, she, it. I think a lot of women, especially at first births, think that when their contractions are um, further away, you know, that that it's more of an emergency. But actually, the body has a pacing. The body has a way of, um, you know, doing it, oh, yeah. doing it slowly. I mean, twenty-four hours is very normal for yeah, a for a first birth, first time yeah, labor, exactly. You know, because you're every every bone that's moving and all those everything is it's all happening for the first yeah, time. Exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And and I know I've I know the midwives I've had. Certainly. I can say almost just one word to them mm. unrelated to birth over the phone and by the sound of my voice, they know mm-hmm. where yeah. I'm at. Yeah. Or I've heard husbands say like, yeah, if I, I just held the phone up <laughs> and she listened to the sound my wife was making yeah. and she knew Amazing. exactly where she was at. Yeah, you, you know, know, because... I- I, I do have those. I saw cues. in my notes that she'd written um, kind of signs of full dilation. You know, she she wasn't measuring me at all. Yes. I wasn't. I was never yeah. measured once. Yeah. Just she was just looking at me and listening to me, and she could see that I was almost fully dilated, with because Absolutely. she's seen have you know how many hundreds of women go through the process. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Thankfully, I even I as somebody who's had a few births and then as a doula who's Mm. attended some births Mm. i'm not in the hundreds or like both my midwives were in the thousands of births that they'd attended but even i can tell Mm. (laughs) you know of course you never say to a mom "Eh, looks like you're you know there's no point in that but (laughs) but you could put it in your private notes for her to reflect on later (laughs) yeah but yeah you you can definitely tell Mm. so that's that's wonderful so let let's let's talk about your births. Okay, so similar in a, a lot of regards to yours, but mm-hmm. not the same. So it's going to be interesting to see how we bounce off of each other. Mm. And so, as you alluded to, slightly different history for me, in that my mom has eight children, mm. and the first four of us were born in hospital, and the second half were born mm. at home. Okay. And so for me, my earliest, my, my, if I reach back in my mind, I have two early memories. One is putting magnet letters on a board mm-hmm. <laughs> with my sister. And the other is um, my dad laying me and my sister in our jackets down on the bed when my little sister was born. Gosh. Um, so he must have brought us home. And laid us down in bed. Mm. My mom, I believe, was still at the hospital because that baby was a preemie and stayed in there a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. But um, my mom, knowing what she knows now, she would have done that differently. I should mm. caveat that by saying. Mm. But um, so I must have only, my sister and I are only 18 months apart. So wow. I wasn't that old. <clears throat> but anyways, um, 
when I got pregnant, I just, I don't know. I just figured I'd have a home birth. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because I remember there were stretches of time growing up where I, like you, um, I had this exposure to Hollywood birth and I was like, mm. oh my gosh, this just looks terrible. Mm. Like what a horrible time. I, I hope they could just give me a drug and black me out and then wake me up and give me a baby later, mm. you know? And that's all when I was young. And then when I, you know, actually was pregnant, then I, I just, I don't know. I just felt like everybody keep your hands off. <laughs> I don't want anybody yeah. getting in this space. And, um, I only told my parents, I actually didn't tell anybody else. Because I knew that negative comments would just start filtering in. And it wasn't going to change my mind, but I didn't want them setting up camp in my head, if that Yeah, makes sense. no, completely. I understand that. Okay, yes. And I also didn't start intentionally going out and doing a ton of research on reading horror stories and birth stories and things like that. I actually was very intentional. I would read through blogs or books mm. and I would only read the home birth yeah. um, stories. And yeah, some negative stuff popped up from time to time, but I just would walk away from it basically. And I felt like very deeply trusting that. Oh, very nice. Um, the information I needed would come to me if I needed it. Yeah. And Okay, can you take her over to the couch? Um, speaking of children, <laughs> I have some right here. <laughs> um, they're up early because the coyotes were like howling oh, okay. crazy last night and woke the kids up. Um, yeah. You did. You did, and it scared them away, huh? <laughs> I know. Can you go lay on the couch with Camille? Good girl. Anyway, um, we were living in California at the time that I got pregnant Mm -hmm. and I didn't take a pregnancy test. I just uh, at some point started to realize, you know, this much throwing up wasn't Mm -hmm. normal, Mm -hmm. even for me. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I just, I just knew I was pregnant and Gary was like, we should take a pregnancy test. And I was like, yeah, but why? I kept saying, I mean, if I am pregnant, eventually we'll find out, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and I remember even I, I biked to the store one time and I went and I was like, fine, maybe I'll take one. And I looked at them and they're $18. And I was like, I'm not taking uh-uh. one. <laughs> Never mind. And then um, at some point when we were going to come back up, can you go take that over to the couch, please? Um, when we were going to come back up to Washington State um, and get re- Gary ready to move to his next duty station, mm-hmm. then he said, well, it's free if you go to the um, doctor's office and they can give you a pregnancy test. And can you please just do that so we know you don't have like a tumor or something? Mm. <laughs> so I was like, fine. So, and I would say that taking, you know, peeing into a cup and then handing it to someone and having them, you know, dip a thing into it is not necessarily invasive. But um, I will say, any decision I made during any of my pregnancies that I regretted was only made because somebody else pressured me to do it. And I wouldn't necessarily say Gary was pressuring me to do it. Um, But any, any decisions I made that I regret was the input of someone else that for whatever reason in that moment, I didn't, I was unable to resist. Yeah. 
I, I get that. I don't know if you feel the same I way. Fe- but I, I felt that about that the about the Doppler thing. You know, everything else. Yeah. I made decisions and I was in integrity and I felt like I was owning my space. You know, I really felt my yes. body and the home and my relationship with Rob, and just there was this pressure from um, the midwife mm-hmm. to to do the heartbeat thing, and it's a, it was such a little thing, yeah. but it was the only, it was that like you said outside pressure, whereas my myself my body my spirit seemed to right know what was right for it yep yeah i i would totally agree with that um and gary really didn't give me any pressure to do things he pretty much like i said just trusted and never questioned and when i said i wanted to do home birth he said okay um but um yeah so that that was just something i've reflected on since the birth, because I do have a couple of regrets and they mm. all were from somebody else. Yeah. And for whatever reason, me not being able to say no. Yeah. So, yeah. um, I was 24 when I got pregnant with Jacob. So I was pretty young. So that's really different not, to me. Not <laughs> ancestrally. I should have been like 14, I suppose. When I had my first, but, <laughs> but, um, for today in America, that would be considered young. Mm. Um, and I was very healthy, which is good. Um, I was outside riding my bike or, you know, walking to the beach or doing yoga, going to classes every single day. And I never stopped during the pregnancy. I just continued on with all my fitness activities as normal, including going to my 90-minute hot yoga classes. Mm-hmm. And um, people said, oh, my gosh, you sh- should you, should you not? And there's people on both sides of the coin of that. Mm-hmm. And I guess I would say, ultimately, you have to be very, very honest with yourself constantly about how you feel. And if you're not feeling good, not pushing yourself to do something because it's what you always do. Um, I don't know if that was similar to you, but kind of with your walking, it sounded kind of like that. Yeah, um, I am. Um, like, I wanted to move more. And mm-hmm. I remember um, doing a lot of research to find a swimming pool that didn't have chlorine in it to treat it. Um, and oh, I found yeah. one at a, so at a posh school that was in the area that was treated with ozone rather than chlorine. And the only way I could get uh-huh. to swim in it was to join a class. So I joined a class <sighs> and I went once a week to swim and it was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I loved it. Great. And afterwards, Gable was always really quiet about like four hours I think it must have sent him to sleep all the kind of motion of the pelvis and me moving around um but I loved swimming uh-huh. I loved swimming it was you know, just that oh, yeah. thing of being weightless and having the water around me it felt really supportive during the pregnancy yeah I love that and I I do wonder reading Katie Bowman's book if I pushed if if I contributed to my diastasis recti mm. by doing so much mm. physical labor, since she talks about the forces and things mm. like that. Um, but also I don't know that not doing anything yeah. would have been any better. Yeah. So it's just one of those things. Yeah. I have no control me, so I can't compare. <laughs> um, but overall it was excellent. I would agree with you that I very much enjoyed being pregnant. I was quite sick a lot. Um, but that didn't really deter me from doing things. And I was, Gary and I were apart for most of the pregnancy because he was in the Navy at the time. Mm-hmm. So um, 
then when I was in Washington state, I was staying with family. And I think this is where my single biggest regret comes from Mm -hmm. during my pregnancy is that I wasn't going to move to where we were living until about 37 weeks when we were going to move to the state of Virginia, mm-hmm. named for one of your queens. Um, and um, everybody around me kept saying, wait, you're not going to see anyone at all until 37 weeks. And I'll, I had no problem with it. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, why? What are they going to tell me? Kind of like you said, I knew. Yeah. They'll say, if something's wrong, well, you can either take the life of your child, which I didn't want to do, mm-hmm. or just wait it out, which was what I was going to do anyway. Yeah. So I was like, what's the point? So um, <clears throat> this is where my regret comes from, is everybody pushed and pushed and pushed and said, you really should just have an appointment with somebody um, here just to make sure everything's okay. And then, and I did, and I still can't even think about that appointment without feeling traumatized. Oh, gosh. So I regret doing that very deeply <clears throat> um, because she also, I don't know where my voice was, but she pushed, the woman that I went to see pushed me to come in for um, an ultrasound, which I was adamant that I wasn't going to do. Mm. And then I don't, honestly, looking back, I... I think I memory wiped because I don't even remember the conversation, how she got me in there. And I think about that and I'm like, if I, how I feel and how I felt and not in labor was manipulated like that, Mm. how in the blazes is a woman, you know, Mm. at eight and a half centimeters on hour 22 of her labor supposed to stand up to seven male doctors coming in telling her something like I don't even it's not even possible um I guess the only thing that I could say positive is that or learning wise for me was that when I went to that horrible traumatizing appointment I brought my mom Mm. because I was starting to realize how voiceless I was Mm. and I asked my mom to come with me And the lady hated my mom (laughs) because the lady would say, well, why don't I do this? And my mom was like, why do you need to do that? Mm -hmm. And she was like, because. Um, And then the lady would say to me, do you want to do this? And my mom would say, does she need to do that? You know? (laughs) And so um, I'm grateful that my mom spared me any more trauma than was necessary. But I do still regret that. Good on your mom, Um, I say. I feel like. um, Yeah. The. That was one of the reasons why I didn't want to go to the hospital because I thought if we stay in Italy and I go to the hospital, if I'm in intense labour and someone is saying something in a language which I have to try and figure out what they're saying because it's not my native language and I'm not fluent, add that onto being pressured into making a decision Mm -mm. in an an environment that you don't, you're Mm -hmm. not familiar with. I just thought... I, I could, anything could happen, you know. I don't know if I could be strong enough to resist and and not be able to say yes to something. And so it felt really extra important for me to not be forced to be in that environment, to do anything that I could to not be in that yeah. environment. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily, I don't know that I necessarily consciously thought, well, if I go to a hospital, they're just going to put a chain around my neck and yank me around. But I could see now that they 
that that's what would have happened. Mm. Um, and I am grateful that I avoided it. Um, it is true, though, when I've attended hospital births, which I should say that I've I made the decision a few, maybe five years ago, I said I won't attend any more hospital mm-hmm. births. I cannot. I just can't be complicit. And women are asking me to go into the hospital with them to protect them yeah. from what they're going into the hospital and choosing. Yeah. And I was like, why? I cannot stand between you and the establishment you chose and sign things away to. Mm. There's nothing I can do. Don't ask me to do that. Mm. But um, they they phrase things. And my mom warned me about this, but she said they'll phrase things and say, hey, what we're going to do now is just check on baby and do this. Mm. And she said, they're asking your permission. They're getting your consent. And you say, oh, okay. But it doesn't sound like they're asking your permission. Yeah. It sounds like they're telling you. And it's true. They do that all the time. They say, hey, we're going to turn this up or turn this down or put this on or take this off. And you, and the mom just goes, oh, okay, okay. Ah, yeah. I have no idea. Or they look at me and they're like, should I do it? And I'm like, you can't ask me for medical advice. I told you before I came in here that this was going to happen. Yeah. But anyways, <clears throat> um, that if I could erase that one moment, then everything else of the pregnancy and the birth was absolutely perfect and uninterrupted and um, unimpeded. When I did finally go, I think I only had maybe two appointments with my midwife before I went. She asked me if we wanted to do a home birth class and um, there really wasn't enough time to join one. You know how they take five weeks or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she's still a friend of mine. Um, and she, she still always says, Oh, if you have another baby, I want to fly to Washington. <laughs> but um she so she came to the house and did one with us and it was wonderful because she thinks like we do and she showed us she had these amazing pictures showing here's how the baby looks sitting inside of mom and and then she was like and then dad you want to see what happens to mom's organs when baby's in there this is why she's uncomfortable look where do they go and gary's like where are they and she's like that's the that's how i need it dot is your stomach yeah <laughs> that's why I'm eating like three bites of food at a time. And then 20 minutes later, I'm hungry yeah. again, like a newborn, but it was really great. And the labor was, yeah, the labor was, was pretty, pretty classic. Um, she was a lot like your midwife. It sounds like, you know, I just kept in touch with her. So I, I knew from experience that, um, you know, yeah, midwives don't want you to tell them oh no come out here right now i think i had a contraction but they do like to know when things start so they can start planning it out like okay this mom is probably in labor so i told her when they were kind of starting and she kind of you know gary went to work i just slept i ate we just kind of had a normal day and then um went into more labor that night and she came out and she actually was she came out and they don't do any internal checks. Um, <clears throat> she used a Doppler, by the way. Mm. I didn't know about the Dopplers until farther down the road when mm. with Adelaide, I had them use a fetoscope yeah. only and the stethoscope, like okay. you said. Um, but she used a Doppler and listened and and just kind of stayed out of my way. And I had told her, I really just want to be left alone. And... Um, you know, I'll ask for you if I need you basically. And I would say that she fulfilled that exactly. She wasn't even in the same room as me when I was laboring for the most part. Um, 
And I think as you described also, midwives can be really a really good midwife. Um, I, I, I have rarely encountered doctors like men who do this. Um, so I don't know if it's the difference between men and women or if it's just the establishment setting versus the home or whatever, but they're really good at coming in and keeping their energetic presence completely like uh, inert's not the right word, mm. but they don't disrupt your wavelength. Mm. They're really good at that. Mm. Um, a good midwife is. And so she came in and I, and then um, like she kind of had like a conversation with Gary, but, and then we would be in one room and she'd be in another room mm. knitting or whatever. <laughs> mm. um, and it was awesome. She would come in if, and Gary would ask her questions and they'd sometimes have a conversation, but, um, or she would ask me if I, you know, maybe I could eat something because she would notice that it had been a while mm. or whatever. Um, but she really just stayed out of the way, which I loved. And then I asked for more interaction from her when I was actually pushing. And it was not hypnobirth, but mm -hmm. I would say similar, like, since there's no checks, like, okay, you're at, okay, like, okay, you're fully dilated. Can you try to push now? Yeah. You know? midwives good ones they just listen and let you follow your body cues and i should also say that that means um oftentimes moms push before they're fully dilated yeah, which yeah. is also okay and can help open the cervix um but you will never hear that in a hospital setting mm. um but yeah it was pretty wonderful uh, i would say the labor length was pretty standard you know like pre-labor and then active labor was probably eight hours, but pre-labor, you know, that yeah. feels like active later labor. My yeah. mom has this saying where she says, there's no such thing as a false contraction. <laughs> she says, if somebody calls it a false contraction, they've never had one. <laughs> she says, every contraction is doing work. They aren't all necessarily active labor, yeah. but they're not false. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. But yeah, she she interacted with me more when I was pushing and I asked her, I said, like I wanted to go just into my headspace and I said, Can you like tell me? I didn't even know if I could feel the contractions anymore, but she could see them. And so she would say, like, all right, you can breathe in. And she never screamed or yelled at me. Um, and she didn't really tell me push, push, or anything mm. like that. I just asked for some guidance and she was willing to give that, which was great. That's lovely. Um so yeah, I, and I, I remember I was, I birthed Jacob in the squatting position, mm -hmm. and I remember I was looking straight out our back window, and I remember saying, "Does somebody mind closing the window?" <laughs> because I could just picture our neighbors walking by and being, "Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> hello!" <laughs> um, yeah, and then the placenta probably came about forty minutes later. My placentas usually take about 40 minutes. Mm. Um, and my midwife is big on not yanking on the placenta. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so when I, I move from the floor to kind of sit on the bed and hold the baby. And then um, this is just, I guess, a funny anecdote of birth. But um, the placenta w wasn't kind of birthed for a while. And then she said, I think it's just right here. It just isn't contracting out. So she just said, oh, I see. <clears throat> would you want to try standing and see if it came out? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So we had like a plastic sour cream tub or something. Mm. And she kind of held that under me and I stood up and <laughs> like just fell out. 
and I hit the bowl. My blood splattered everywhere. I remember Gary like turning his head. He's sitting next to me, you know, holding the baby skin to skin. And he just turned his head blood splattered on him. And I didn't realize until ages later that it also splattered on the wall. Oh, and I don't think we cleaned it off until we left because we didn't notice it for a long time. Mm. And then we're like, ah, it's in the middle. <laughs> Gary's like, yeah, I wonder what somebody would say if they came in and saw this. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. Um, but it was really wonderful. I really loved those midwives. It was a midwife and an apprentice that came. And then um, at Camille's birth, mm. then they were both certified. But if somebody wants to read Camille's birth, it's on my blog, Farm and Hearth. Um, it's called oh. Camille's Borning, so A True Story. How many, <laughs> how many years after Jacob was Camille? Um, he turned three, uh, maybe two weeks after she was born. Okay. And then Adelaide, so how much later was she? Three. Um, she's, I want to say two and a half years. Okay. After, after Camille. So you were like 30 when Adelaide was born? Yep. I was 30 when okay. she was born. Yep. Okay. And were those births particularly different? Nope. So and they just got faster and better. Yeah, that that's what happened. <laughs> I, got, I, I got it down to like a two hour process. <laughs> that's what happened with my sister by her third one, that horrible first birth by her third one. Basically, the mm -hmm. thing just came out. You know? She just she got her clothes off and went to get in. a. They had a birthing pool by then at the hospital, went to get in the birthing pool. And, and James, her son, just came out just like that. <laughs> I love it. With Camille's birth was was remarkable and if somebody wants to read the timeline or what you want mm. what you want to say why I'm saying it's remarkable on um the blog they can but it I remember specifically saying I was teaching yoga at like three or four different studios at the time when I was pregnant with her and people asked me how long are you going to teach yoga mm. went during pregnancy and I said because I love teaching yoga I said up to the last minute mm. and my water broke in shavasana <laughs> on my last class <laughs> So, and it was interesting because I taught the class and I know now I was in very active labor um, because the contractions were so strong and so close. Mm. I would give the direction for a pose and no, but I'm telling you, Allison, the best way to labor is nobody knows you're in labor because you really cope really well then. <laughs> but, and then I literally couldn't even speak. I would just have to breathe. Mm. And I couldn't like touch anyone during the contraction because mm. it took basically all my energy just to focus on the contraction. Yeah. And and then I would give the direction. It was just really the right pacing. I would give the direction for the next mm. um, pose. And um, I remember there was a mom and a daughter visiting Virginia at that time. They, were, they came to the class just as a guest from out of town. And they came back later and told the studio owner... This was the highlight of our trip Aww. because everybody was like, how far along are you? And I was like, I'm basically done, you know. Um, and I actually had had the inkling, kind of like you said, I thought Camille was going to be born that day because I Gary was in these training classes. And I'd asked him what would be the best day to have the baby. And he had said that day. <laughs> so I was like, okay. okay following orders. Yeah, because he couldn't not be at the training classes, you mm. know. He was in the Navy. It wasn't really like he had options. Mm. So, um, yeah, so it worked out that way. But I I remember I just had this intuition. I was as everybody, I mean, obviously I was contracting, but um everybody was in Shavasana 
And I usually just sit quietly and wait for Shavasana, but I rolled up my mat. I put all my own blocks away. And then I just sat on my mat at the front mm -hmm. of the class until they were done. And then it kind of said, you know, thank you very much. You know, and then I got up and I walked to the studio door and the next teacher was already there to start checking her students. And I opened the door and I said to her, my water broke. And the second I said it, my water broke. I still don't know why I said it. <laughs> um, but I opened the door and said, my water broke. And then my water broke. <laughs> so when I drove home, I remember thinking, well, Jacob's labor was pretty long. Like, yeah. This could be another day, yeah. you know. I had no idea how I would do a second. But I remember then I thought, I'll look at the clock and I'll time these. I actually called my mom. Um and she said to me later, she's like, I do not know how you were driving. But um, <clears throat> I timed them and I was like, oh, they are like four minutes apart okay. and a couple minutes long or, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty strong. And I remember stopping to let someone cross the street <laughs> and I could barely smile and wave. Like I wanted to show good manners, you know, but yeah. I, was like, oh, I was having such a powerful contraction in that moment. And then when I drove to the house, I started to like back my car. And then I was like, actually, I can't do this. I'm just going to leave it on the side of the road and let Gary park it. <laughs> and he did, you know, it was, and, and he had called the midwife. I'd called the midwife too. Okay. And she had said, I was like, Gary was like, should I come home? And I was like, ah, it's fine. We probably have like hours and hours. You should just finish your work day. And then um, he said, he was like, yeah, when you said that, I just got in my car and came home. Yeah. <laughs> Good plan. But yeah, I was in bed with the baby, you know, under two hours later. So so you, because you've seen a lot of births being a doula, you must have seen women whose partners were more skeptical than Rob mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Gary. Yeah. So what, you know, Zara asked, what would we, advice would we give to people whose partners are skeptical about a yeah. natural pregnancy and, and home birthing or free birthing. What would you say to that? Kind of a tough one. Mm. Well, for the most part, the couples I see now, they're not a, you know, random selection at this point. Yeah. They're um, people who are now in a natural birth space. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they... Um... Oh, nice. Jacob's running with something. Um, but... I talk to a ton of people about birth mm. and initially my tongue in cheek response was always, well, tell him you'll birth this baby at home. And then when he births the next one, he can do it wherever he wants. <laughs> you know, that's my, my tongue in cheek response, but that's kind of too flippant and it doesn't take into account, you know, that he, he may have fears and this is his child too, even yeah. though it's coming through the portal of you. Um, so that's not, really the answer I give anymore. Mm. Um, I, I would say that it's worth taking both into account because also if he's desperately paranoid, that is going to start wearing off on yes. you. Um, and so to just say, well, I'm going to ignore your full-blown panic attacks and just do what I want, um, that might not be a good situation for you either. Um, I honestly, I would get him to talk to another dad that has had a good home birth experience, but also that men, I don't know, they tend to be the ones who are more afraid. 
almost 100% of the time in my experience. Mm. Women, like, there's women and men who are both afraid, but there's, I would say, in my experience, the proportion then of couples where the man is afraid and the woman is not is higher, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, Um, that does make sense because, I mean, it's completely unknown for men. They don't have that bodily intuitional wisdom. They don't have... for a lot of men, women's bodies are a complete mystery, full stop. So um, <laughs> it's just right, it, it's right, a huge extension right. of that. And, of course, it, you know, if they've seen the Hollywood stuff, well, who blamed them for feeling like that, you know? It's mm-hmm. not depicted. Birth yeah, is not and, depicted well. and it's kind of like people's fear of flying. There's this disproportionate bias. And I'm not, I don't mean because of the extras or something. I mean because people are like, well, I saw this horrible plane crash on TV and... I don't know, Gary comes home from like 30 car crashes a day, Mm. right? But nobody's publicizing that because it's, you know, nobody. So people are like, oh, I heard about this horrible birth. And you're like, yeah, sure. But that that completely is disproportionate. Um, And and it is. I don't know if this if you've had many conversations with people about their births, but the number of women who. I mean, we're talking grievously traumatized from what would be mm. considered a normal hospital birth. Mm. And women are walking away feeling raped, like mm. medically raped, and they're feeling um, disconnected to their baby. They're feeling like the regret I feel over that one decision, they feel it about thousands of things. They feel manipulated. They feel had. They felt like they were led around by the nose, you know? Um it's a lot of women I who um, feel that. I, because I was living in the house of Rob's mum during the, you know, the last kind of five months of my pregnancy and obviously birthed in the house of Rob's mum, it was, it came up, you know, about Rob's birth and just how awful oh, Rob's no. mum found it. She went to hospital and yeah. she just had the normal hospital treatment and she was really Mm -hmm. expecting it to be a horrendous experience for me you know that's why she was standing by with the with the car ready Mm -hmm. to go to the hospital and and I remember um her telling me afterwards you know I was convinced this was was not going to go very well and then I heard you oh my I heard you um cry out you know scream I guess that's when I was just about to give birth that's uh, when I you know I I Uh actually made a noise and she was yeah. upstairs for the whole process. She kept herself really scarce. And um, she heard that noise when I was about to give birth. And she thought, oh, now it's really started. She's really going to, you know, she's just about to, to go into hours and hours and hours of, you know, painful screaming. Wow. Whereas Gabriel was born within like a minute. And then she heard yeah. Gabriel crying. And she was just like, what? One, oh, one cry God, out loud. And, and then Ooh. a baby. She was... She just thought I was then in for like, you know, 12 hours of of crying out because that's how Rob's birth was, you know, and yeah. And well, mm. I mean, even even so short time ago, then as when Rob was born, think about the birth practices. I mean, that that was an entire generation of women who were taught not to breastfeed. Yeah. Um, our parents. Yeah. Now, I will say my mom breastfed all of us and my entire childhood, I think that contributed to my breastfeeding experiences. I really mm. do because, and my sisters also, 
um, because I don't have really any memory of a day where mom wasn't sitting on the couch nursing a baby. Mm. It was, and I remember the midwife asked me, now, what are your plans for, you know, breastfeeding? And, you know, have you done any reading on it? And I was like, what? It's like if somebody came to you and said, now, have you done any research on going to the bathroom? And do you feel comfortable <laughs> using the toilet paper? And you're like, I'm, why are you asking me? I'm so confused. <laughs> like, doesn't everyone just do See, it? That, that's just amazing. <laughs> you know, my, my breastfeeding story is a whole nother episode needed to cover that. But yeah, I, that is a, that is a I had, story. Um, you know, before well, whilst I was pregnant, because I was bottle fed and, you know, I just, mm-hmm. me and my mum don't talk about anything like that. And I didn't have any experience really breastfeeding. So I went to, um, there's, I don't know if you have the La Leche League, but there's a kind of a breastfeeding. Yeah, and I went to like three or four of their meetings um, around where we were during that time, you know, six, seven, eight months pregnant to to watch people breastfeeding, to learn about it. I read books. I did absolutely everything to try and understand how I could best breastfeed to Gabriel. Um, right. Because I didn't have that. Like like you, you know, you saw it. It was just a routine right. thing. Like you said, like going to the loo. Right. But for me, it was like foreign, yeah. foreign territory. <laughs> right. And every, I mean, I grew up in a church where there was lots of families and every, we went to baby showers, we went to wedding showers, we went to parties, homeschool gatherings. Somebody was, there was always like three yeah. moms, four moms, moms in church nursing, moms sitting at the dining room table nursing, like everybody was nursing. Mm. So it it didn't seem abnormal. And I remember we talked about this on the Big Families episode where I, I was saying how, you know, in the context of a big family, the continuum never stops because then my little sister was seven when I had my kids. And so she grew up seeing yeah. me nursing and yeah. then my sisters, you know. Um, so hopefully normalized it, you know, because it is normal. Mm. But um, that's not to say like with your experience that there aren't exceptions because mm. there certainly are exceptions, mm. but that's what defines normal Yeah, is that usually it goes a certain way and then sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Um, I wonder if yeah. I've thought about this, Allison, mm. um, it... If the, let's see, how do I say this? Hmm. So people say, but is it, you know, when we're talking about moms being traumatized and things like that, Hmm. and people are like, yeah, but isn't the most important thing that mom and baby are healthy? And Hmm. that is, of course, a paramount feature. And that is actually Hmm. why we gravitate towards natural birth, because um, natural birth has uh, higher odds of securing that outcome of a healthy mother and baby. Um, But I was thinking if the, only reason was just to desperately ensure that by a medical standard, everybody's alive, then a society could easily reach a point where the only way you were, like you said, your mid, that midwife in Italy said, I, I legally have to induce you at 42 mm. weeks. And it's actually the same in Washington state. Mm. Um, although I won't name any names, but there's plenty of midwives who don't, mm. but, um, um, it is the same thing here. Mm-hmm. And I just knew that if somebody said that, I would just um, cancel the care and free birth on my own. Mm-hmm. So it didn't really concern me. But um, <clears throat> you can sign away everything else, but you still have to sign it away. Like I declined the GBS. I declined the everything. I declined everything. Um, I declined internal checks. I declined Mm -hmm. this, I declined that, you know, 
Um, wouldn't we then reach a point where legally, because it's the safest and safety is the thing option, you can only have a baby that's producing a test tube, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like manufactured somewhere because it is better. But I feel like we need to acknowledge that there's other biological needs being served Definitely. in birth than just our two people with a heart beating standing there at the end of the day. Um, again, I don't want to understand underestimate the value of that obviously i've got to and i am grateful for when mm. hmm. I, I was gonna say i've got two things to say about what you just said okay let's hear it. um so the first one is just like do you want it to just happen and, and ensure survival is you see the parallel with food i mean we could just all eat salem green we yes, could all eat a tablet we could all just eat you know yes, meat created in a, a laboratory and then just inject it might as well just do that and get on with our lives or and yeah. what we lose with that the connection we lose the sensuality we use the sitting around the table we lose the creating the, the food the love that just so oh, but you could but but so but, but what about the safety allison what if you you ate what you craved and you were low on vitamin a I, uh, it's not good for you what if you weren't getting enough of this and that you know we could make if if safety is the only and i agree with you on the food thing if that's the only thing that matters then um there really is no basis for anything other than, you know, the soil and yeah, green pill completely. or tablet or whatever. The question is, you know, what type of life do I want to live? I don't want to be, have a life where yes. I'm taking tablets or injecting food or eating sonic green. I want a life where I go to my farmer and I see where the animals are and I see what he's got and I bring the stuff home and I think, how am I going to cook this? And I, and I play with it and I make it nice and I'm smelling it and I'm tasting it and I sit at the table and, and I've got variety and yes. I've got texture. I, I don't want the life out of the bottle and I feel like it's the same or it feels to me the same with with birthing and with pregnancy that experience of being pregnant and birthing absolutely and completely changed me as a woman and it was everything it was high it was low it was the sensuality it was the psychological change it was the actual process Mm -hmm. of the birthing it was my relationship with Rob it was my body it was everything and and I choose that rather than going into the hospital and making it or even putting in a test tube you know and that's not life Mm -hmm. that's just some kind of weird science fiction you know that that yeah, George Orwell which is becoming less science fiction every day more and more science, science nonfiction, yeah, exactly. which is terrifying because I, I agree that I see the parallels in food and many other, many other things. I mean, mm. we just went through mm. two and a half years of people uh, yeah. mm. handing over any, you know, relationships with a 95 year old who was dying. Mm. They handed it over in the name of possible safety. Yeah. And they said, I'll let that person die alone. Mm. You know, like horrible things have happened. Um, throughout history in the name of safety. I don't know if anybody who's listening or if you, Allison, if you've read The Giver by Lois Lowry. No. Um, but if this topic interests anybody, it's, it's a short fiction book. I read it when I was a kid and I just read it again recently. And it made, I mean, food features in there. I mean, it's it's a very profound book. And the author has said, you know, out of all the books she's ever written, 90% of her mail comes to her about that book because it just, it shook us all to the core. And I remember how vividly it just shook me. I think I was probably 13 when I read it and I was like, this cannot be, but they addressed this issue in a very beautifully written, very simple um, story. I mean, it's really, really wonderful, but 
But that's kind of the context. Like, what is the point then? I mean, if we can make a, we can make an engineered society where everybody lives in some kind of a high rise and has their nutrient quota delivered by drone, why would you need anything else? Yeah. Does that not satisfy the needs of the species? Mm. There, there's more to us than that, isn't there? Chickens um, in the factory farm. What, what, um, we've still got one question that I want to address directly from Zara, which was mm -hmm. um, books and articles. So from, from my perspective, oh, yeah. I would say hypnobirthing was an amazing resource for me and all of the stuff uh -huh. that comes along with that is worth investigating and reading other people's um, home birthing stories. There are people who put together books that you can get e-books with home birthing stories. Mm -hmm. If you're not familiar with home birthing, or if you want to do free birthing, you know, find some stories about free birthing. Um, I, yeah. I feel like learning from other women um, is a wonderful thing, particularly if you come from an environment like me where it wasn't normal. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything in particular you yeah. would say that you would point people to to read, Andrea? Yeah, Grantly Dick Reed wrote um, Childbirth Without Fear, I think in the 40s. That's good. Mm -hmm. um, Ina Mae Gaskin uh, is yeah. always really encouraging yeah. to me. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, Ricky Lake wrote this book called Your Best Birth. And this could be helpful for you and a partner if you're trying to make the decision. Because in a very non-judgmental and uh, very humorous way, she goes through basically your options from... I don't, I don't remember if free birth is in there. It might just be like if she's talking to women who want an attendant. Um, but a home birth with a midwife, a birth center, a birth center attached to a hospital, mm -hmm. a hospital, a C-section. Mm -hmm. And she gives you lists of questions you could ask the provider. Because, again, not if unless you've been to 30 births in 30 different contexts, you might not know that you can go to a childbirth center attached to a hospital and they won't tell you. You're like, oh, I'm at a birth center. You're not at a birth center. You're in a hospital that's dressed up to look like yeah. a birth center and it will follow the rules of the hospital yeah. and you'll be subject to the rules of the hospital. It's not a birth center unless it's an independent, freestanding, completely separate, mm -hmm. you know, birth center that has nothing to do with the hospital. And they'll say to you something like, this is why it's useful to have the list of questions. And she phrases them very specifically mm -hmm. because you can say, hey, do you have birthing balls? And she'll say, yes, we do. And then when you get there, you say, I really want that birthing ball. And she goes, I'm sorry, both of them are with other moms right now. And you're like, yeah. what? Or you could say, is there a tub for birthing? And she'll say, why, yes, there is. And they'll even show you the room with the tub. And then you get there and you're like, I need yeah. to get in the tub. And they'll say, sorry, there's another yeah. mom in that room. Yeah. You need this closet. And and people don't realize this, that, but that's why the questions are helpful. So that's a good book. And um, I remember I, I haven't watched it probably since 2009, but so I don't know if it's still something I'd recommend or not, but I remember the business of being born was helpful because it gave a lot of statistics about the safety, um, like the history and why women are choosing to birth outside of the hospital now. Mm -hmm. There might be a, there's some births in there, like on video. Um, one of my friends is actually in there. My friend Haley, her birth is in there. Um, so that might be helpful. 
in terms of video. Okay. And then, um, yeah, I would just reach out to moms and ask for yeah. positive birth stories, but very careful because people say, oh, let me tell you my yeah, horrible birth they story. Want to. <laughs> and I will tell you too that a lot of those horrible birth stories are constructed by the hospital. And you might think I'm exaggerating, except for the fact that one of my friends who's a doula, attend, she'd always gone to home birth and she attended one of her friend's partners was too afraid to do the home birth. So they opted for a hospital birth. And my friend called me at like 5 a.m. the next day, or she messaged me and she said, I am so traumatized. This was the worst night of my life. Um, I have to call you later today and tell you what happened. And I texted her back and I said, let me guess, this happened. Then they said this, mm. then this happened. And I gave her the timeline and she texted me back. She was like, oh my gosh, how did you know? That's exactly what happened. And I was like, because it's the timeline. Yeah. It happens every time. Mm. Like I knew what happened at the birth before she even told me because it's predictable. The interventions, I knew exactly which ones had happened, and I knew exactly where it led mom's body, and I knew where she ended up, which was in a C-section. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if somebody's telling you, yeah, they they have a timeline or an agenda that they want to push, and they're going to get you on it, and who knows where you'll stop, but this is where it ends up, I'm not exaggerating about that. Like, it is true. Mm. And um, it left that mom... Horrifically traumatized. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Yeah. I feel like there's a huge, like, two ends of the scale between, you know, a birth like that and a birth that could be done at home mm -hmm. or, or free birth. I am, um, you know, Rob and I won't have any more children, um, even though we would have loved to have had more children. It's something that we've uh -huh. discussed many times. And it's, uh, um, we're very, very, very grateful to have Gabriel, considering. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a cycle for five years and um, Rob and I uh, kind of met when we did. We didn't get together and, until I was a bit late, older. Um, but I feel like, right. you know, birth, birth can be a beautiful, empowering, gorgeous thing. And it, right. it requires, or for me, it required really dedication on each day of my pregnancy and following what my body was telling me to do and shutting out, like you've said many times in this, in this recording, shutting out what um, you don't want to hear. You know, it's just, it's, it's similar in life. You know, if yeah. you want to yes. surround yourself with people Absolutely. who are negative and are telling you, you can't start your own business or you can't do this, or you can't do that. Yeah. Well, you, you're going to be dragged yeah. down by them. It's the same with birth. You start to absorb that. And so you become. Exactly. Yeah. It's possible to shut all that out and help yourself towards the reality that you want to happen. Um, and if you can, it, it can be one of the most wonderful experiences of your life. I think I've said that a lot now. <laughs> I agree. But it is transformative. And they say, you know, every pregnancy you have, the baby actually leaves um, some of their own, I don't know what the right word is, tissue maybe, mm. in your body, in your brain. Like it actually changes a, a mother's brain. Like you literally change. I know people say it's going from maiden to woman. Mm. Um, but you, you literally transform your brain changes. Mm. And I know people say, I don't want to lose my identity mm. by having a child. Um, but you, 
you aren't a maiden anymore. Mm. You aren't, you know, um, you e even if a baby, even if you carried a pregnancy and the baby didn't mm. come full term or um, maybe passed, mm. you're still a mother. Mm. Your body knows that. Mm. You have changed. Mm. I feel like that's a whole, that's, that's a whole nother discussion as well that I'd like to have with you at some point because I feel like yeah, I was terrified of losing my identity during during pregnancy you know I'd, mm -hmm. I built up this business as a life coach and then it was all yeah. kind of in Italy and then I was suddenly back in the UK and and I was determined to carry on with that business and then the first year of Gable's birth the business just everything right. it didn't implode but it it you know a year later the business didn't exist anymore. I let go of the entire thing. And right. I was in in um, Rob's mum's lean-to on the side of the house painting, which I'd never done before at all. Um, and I remember uh -huh. feeling very, very bewildered and lost after the birth because it's just such a huge change. And I remember realising just how much I loved Gabriel and Rob and how mm -hmm. mortal they were and you know how yeah. if they weren't around anymore what it would do to me you know it just it, it shook yeah. my kind of sense of who I was and I Absolutely. you know a year later I I changed psychologically but actually you know what was around me had changed I'd, I'd let go of a business which I'd spent mm -hmm. the previous like six seven years building um and yeah. it, it really does change you um and it's um that's yeah. it, it's a a really interesting rite of passage, that whole area of kind of identity shift yeah. and um, fascinating. I, I wonder if that's part of why it is often bewildering and challenging for one, because our society pushes us to have kids older and older, mm. um, which sometimes just happens because you don't find the right partner. Yeah. You know, that, that can happen. That can be part of it. And then we're also told a lot of times, you know, live your entire life do everything mm -hmm. you ever wanted to do before you yeah. ever have a child and having that imprint happen earlier and younger is probably easier in a way. Mm. I think you're probably, you know, right. because, because you have, it's just like, you know, when two people meet at the age of 50 and get married, they're so set in their ways mm. that it's harder to adapt than not saying yeah. that they should have, but like if they met when they were 20. Yeah you know, and they hadn't really gotten set in their ways and they set their ways together. Mm. Um, so I think that can play a part. And then also the fact that our society does not acknowledge that being a parent changes you. Yeah. Girls, can you go back upstairs? Yeah, I okay, mean, the, the support for mums, I mean, you think about how it would have been and how it is still in some parts of the world that <laughs> are just about still there, where the the yeah. sisters are there, the aunts are there, the mums mm -hmm. are there, the grandmas are there. Yeah. They're all experiencing it together. They're living together. They're close together. They're support all the way through. And and yeah. now the, the isolated societies and kind of bricks and, and mortar we live in away from people, just a woman is not supposed to be pregnant and birthing and in the early days of her ch of no. bringing up her children on her own she's just not supposed to be and so yeah. you makes you 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 see why yeah. postnatal depression is such a, a oh, yeah. exaggerated you know is made worse by the fact that that support mm -hmm. is just not there for women in the way that we've moved society yeah. in the last couple of hundred years at all yeah 
Which, which is not to say that it didn't exist before. Mm. We certainly have documentation of that. But, um, you know, like with that that woman all the way back in the medieval times who dictated that book, which I cannot remember the name of, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Mm. Um, the one who started like seeing angels and things like that. But um, it we we offer support to the women woman in the terms of how can we subsidize childcare? Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and that has its place obviously in certain contexts, but that's really not the kind of support we need. Mm. We need nourishing food. We need rest. Maybe somebody um, taking care of the house or the other kids while we sleep with the baby. You know, it, it's different than just here, let me take the child away from you, find a way to watch the child for you so that you can go back yeah. to being you separated from the child. And a friend of mine who, um, she's an amazing little lady. She just had a, a free birth um, maybe six months ago. Mm. And she was, she texted me. She said, well, I went to work for like three and a half hours today and it was so hard because I just didn't want to be away from him. Mm. And I told her, you know, that's so funny because people always say to me, you know, I would say, oh, it's so much harder to find, um, to, to go and work out or go to yoga or whatever after having a baby. And they'd say, well, you just need to make time for it. And I would say, no, it's not the time. Mm. It's that I don't want to be away from mm. them. I'm, you know, and, and one of the benefits of, um, uninterrupted birth is you have often a very deep biological connection with the baby that was never interrupted with synthetics, mm. um, in any way. What was that sound? But, um, but yeah, you feel very connected to the baby and hormonally connected and and everything, and it is hard to be away from them. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Oh, I think maybe we should finish. My watch says five o'clock. <laughs> I don't know how long we've been talking. Yeah, I think we started at well six thirty, so that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> in a in a kind of weird parallel universe where time doesn't exist. <laughs> it was really um yeah. really interesting and informative. It's nice to be able to share and to hear your experiences too, Andrea. Thank you. Yeah. Really good questions. Mm, thank you, Zara. From, from Zara. Re well phrased. And I, I don't know that we really answered it because I don't really know what the answer is if the partner's not on board. Mm other than it's usually a gap in education and, and that's, you know, can be hard to get them educated. I think, I think talking to other fathers of potential home births is a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Gary says that all the time. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, yeah, before I kind of wondered, but he goes after having the first baby, he goes, I can never imagine going anywhere, but having yeah. a baby at home. Yeah. So he could talk and to another. And my dad says the same. He could talk to another man yeah. about it. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. I'm very appreciative that my parents, when I said I was having a home birth, they said, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's another world for me. <laughs> it's like, really? Yeah. 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 That world exists. It though. does. It's out there. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm going to say let's finish there. And um, all right, let's do it. Thank you very much. Wrap it up. And um, we'll put that out into the world. I think that will this will go yeah. out, this will go out at the beginning of January. So it's kind of a, a new Perfect. birth for a new year. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. I love it, Allison. <laughs> all right, thank you guys for being our, our awesome patrons. Yeah, we, we really, really appreciate, appreciate you. you. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Thank 
Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram, Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration, and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. <laughs>